Welcome to What the Food with Karen Van Barneveld. Much of the time, we mindlessly consume food without really thinking about what's in it and how it affects us. Not only is some food addictive, it also might be unsafe. On our program, you'll find the answers about why food is addictive, how it affects us, and how to find a safe route to better health. Now, here is your host, Karen Van Barneveld. Hey, this is Karen Van Barneveld with WTF What the Food, where we share the good, the bad, and the ugly about what you're putting on your plate and how it affects your health. I have my dear friend and colleague, Haley Hyatt, with me here today. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Haley. Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, A little bit about Haley. She holds an interdisciplinary degree in early modern Europe and a master's of science in leadership studies from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, which is up here in Prescott. And Haley started her professional journey as a teacher in the U.S. Peace Corps, where she taught British and American literature and civics. She continued teaching when she returned to the States and relocated to Arizona to pursue a graduate degree in education at Prescott College. During that time, she started working at Catholic Charities as an in-home service provider for families under investigation by CPS, Child Protective Services. And she works side-by-side with families to understand and mitigate stressors that create risk in the home. Over the next decade, Haley worked with various programs and organizations on poverty reduction strategies that encompassed everything from financial education services to emergency shelter and affordable housing. She switched the focus of her academic studies from education to leadership studies to better facilitate the kinds of collaborative work necessary to address complex social challenges and the wicked problems presented by social, economic, and environmental justice objectives. That's an interesting word in there, the wicked problems. (laughs) Tell us a little about what that means. Yeah, so um, what we are seeing in in today's world with this, the, the emerging conversations around uh, sustainability and social justice, we've got what they call the triple bottom line. So we're talking about environmental justice, uh, social justice, and economic justice. And those three things um, are wicked problems. There are other examples of that, but the idea being that they are um, a result of interdependent systems that you go from sort of complicated issues where you have one or two variables to complex issues where you have multiple variables to wicked problems where you have so many intersecting influences that it seems impossible, uh, impossible to address. But what we know is it's it's not impossible, uh, but it's one of the reasons that, you know, solutions are harder to come by when you're dealing with wicked problems. Mm. Well, I find it interesting that that's that's a a very good word. word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a good word to describe some of our social and economic problems. Right. Um, where did your interest in food as, as medicine begin? Well, so personally, uh, back in 2000, 2003, I was living in Washington, D.C., and I had developed um, a urinary tract infection, actually, that uh, wouldn't go away. It went on for months, and it turned out I didn't have insurance at the time, Um I was teaching, I was having trouble finding a doctor. I was not native to that area. Um, When I finally got in to see someone, I didn't have a urinary tract infection, but I was 
experiencing all of these symptoms. And there was a lot of chronic pain that went along with that. Um, when I finally got a diagnosis of interstitial cystitis, they told me that this at the time was sort of in the category of other, um, using air quotes here, mystery illnesses like hmm. chronic fatigue syndrome and um, fibromyalgia and you know a number of these chronic conditions that were beginning to emerge that people didn't really understand where they were coming from. And we weren't, I think, you know, at the time, so sure that maybe these people just weren't a little, um, like that they weren't hypochondriacs or that it wasn't all in their head um, or something like that. I, I, from my experience, that was definitely not in my head. <laughs> my body felt like it was on fire all the time. Um, and I was terribly uncomfortable and I was kind of at my wits end. And I actually wound up deciding to go on a 30 day yoga and meditation retreat. I had, I had just come off getting, you know, finally sort of getting this diagnosis of somebody telling me this is what was wrong. Um, I was given a three different prescriptions that were incredibly expensive. Um, side effects included everything from like, you know, maybe my hair's going to fall out to uh, <laughs> nausea and headache, you know, and it was like, I, I just don't know about this. There was something about it that you know, I just, I just wasn't sure. And so I, I wound up, you know, deciding to make this drive up to Pennsylvania to um, stay on this farm uh, at a place called the Himalayan Institute. And they have been around since the seventies and they do yoga and meditation and um, wellness retreats and all kinds of, all kinds of things there. And they had this 30 day program. I had the summer, I decided I would go do that. And within two weeks of being at this place, all of my symptoms had subsided. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that, I mean, you can imagine going from like a chronic inflammatory condition where like you literally feel like you're on fire. The minute you get any kind of relief, I mean, it relief, it's just, it's such an understatement, you know, this feeling of like, um, you know, peace that sort of washes over you. And it's like, I need to understand what's happening here because I hadn't taken any of the medications uh, that had been prescribed. Um, I think that some of it was lifestyle and less stress and, and not being in the city. But for me, I, I believe that it had everything to do with a drastic change in my diet. I was suddenly living on a farm and eating whole, clean food. Um, and the more I learned about the diagnosis I had been given, the more I understood, um, I began to understand, you know, more about pH levels and my own pH levels and acidity versus alkalinity. And so having more alkaline foods in my diet had allowed me to, you know, manage this emerging condition. And, and the interesting thing is for me, I'm having this like, you know, revelatory experience. I'm like, I can't believe this, but, but the people that I was around, the people that work there, some of the people that lived year round on the property were just so like, you know, this was not a big deal to them uh -huh. at all. You know, like, yeah, of course, eating, eating differently is going to, is going to change, is going to change how all that works for you. I, the other piece of that was that at the time you were, you were given a complimentary, um, consultation with the with the homeopath the resident mm -hmm. homeopath which is not something I didn't know anything about homeopathy um, <laughs> and they asked me if I had you know if there was just one thing like there's lots of things that we might want to change about our life but if there was one thing about you know about your health that I could help you with you know what would that be and I was 29 years old at the time and I had not had I had not had my menstrual cycle in years uh, and 
I said that, you know, if there's something that I can do that would, that would change that, I, you know, I would, I would like to know. And he asked me a series of what I thought were very wild and out there unrelated questions and wound up sort of giving me um, a little homeopathic uh, pill Um, and some mother's wort, which as you know, is an herb. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I put that a couple of drops of that in my tea every morning for like three days. And then my, my menstrual cycle came back and I've had it (laughs) regularly ever since. So, you know, again, that's, that's, that's really personal information, I guess, to be sharing on the radio, I know. But it was so profound for me at 29 years of age to have been faced with these things that I had been told by the medical community, you know, my, these, my options were, you know, pharmaceuticals um, or uh, surgical procedures mm-hmm. or going on intense hormone therapy, which I, you know, I didn't want to do. And then all of a sudden, somebody says, you know, put a few drops of this in your tea and, and the problem was solved. I just, I, I just was so dumbfounded. I thought there is a whole world of information out there that mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't understand how I could be 29 and not ever having, you know, been right. exposed to this. Well, and, and this is something that's come up on the show before and, and in my conversations with people that, you know, 50, 60 or more years ago, you couldn't find a fertility clinic uh, unless you went to the Yellow Pages. And now they're on, you know, there's probably three or 400 of them down in Phoenix alone. And, and it's because there's so much wrong with our food and our toxicity and the way we live that women are having problems getting pregnant. And uh, it's it's a real... Um, expensive proposition and there is money to be made in fertility clinics so why bother telling them to put a few drops of mother's wort in their tea that they can get over the counter right well right I mean it's shocking and then of course it it begs the question you know for me at 29 it's like how did I get that way how did I how did it how did I come to the place where um, I wasn't having my my menstrual cycle. And, right. and I think a lot of that can, has to do with our food, our food supply and our food systems. Yeah. Um, but the, the depth of um, complexity around the food system and what kinds of foods we're eating, I just, it, w- it was all new to me at that moment, you know? Yeah. So how did your time in the Peace Corps influence your relationship to food? So I think that um, you know, in reference to my own personal medical journey with food, um, my time in the Peace Corps sort of primed me to see that. I mean, I was, had primed me to like really understand more about what was happening when I, when I did go to stay at that farm. Um, I served in Ukraine in 99, 2000, 2001. Um, and, one of the things that, I mean, there's so much to adjust to when you're moving to a new country and um, everything is so different and you're learning a new language and, and all of those things. A lot of what I learned didn't come clear to me until I had come home. Um, but certainly one of the primary differences that I, that I took away was there, there was just this sacred, there was the sacred relationship to food that I think mm-hmm. comes from Ukraine's long history as the, the, bread basket 
um, of Eastern Europe, and they sort of bring that forward when you when you get off the plane, you know, and we were all standing there, um, all the Peace Corps volunteers who have just arrived in country and they're introducing us to our host families. Um, they come forward with a loaf of bread mm-hmm. and everybody has to tear off a hunk of the bread and, and eat a hunk of the bread. And that's the welcome. There's this. That's sweet. It's precious. Uh, it's absolutely precious. And it, I think, says a lot about how they view the sacred act of um, feeding their guests. That's an important, like once you've fed someone, you, you've entered into a contract with them. Mm-hmm. And this is how we met, you know, our families. It's like, they're going to feed you and they're going to take care of you. And, uh, you know, during this time that you're in training, these are the people that you're going to live with. And part of how you seal that social contract is through food, uh, which is a beautiful, is a beautiful thing. Breaking bread together. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other thing that I would like to just, you know, point out about that, that I think, you know, flashing forward to work in the social service sector, um, part of what I think is, is problematic about our current system um, is this large, you know, is, is our food systems. It's a large centralized structure with, you know, big ag, big food, you don't see that so much in, you don't see it at all, actually, in places like Ukraine. And it turns out in most places in the world, I mean, this the big, big food, big ag, uh, the way we do it is a very United States, you know, yes. phenomena. And in Ukraine, so many people um, still grow their own food. Yeah. They, you know, everybody has something called a dacha um, and Sometimes it's located a little ways out of town, but like everybody grows something. And, and one of the things that was, you know, entertaining, I, you know, I couldn't figure out like the first year I was there, it's like why everybody was always so worried about me. Uh, I mean, they weren't so worried about me. They, they take, you know, all these Americans, all these people living abroad, foreigners, you know, they take you under the wing, but there's this concern of like how you're going to make it. And I, it took me a while to figure out that a lot of that <laughs> was based on the fact that like, since I wasn't from there and I didn't have family there and I didn't have a dacha, how was I? how was I possibly eating? You know, how was I, how was I going to get food? Because everybody grows, everybody grows their own food. So um, my neighbors, my neighbors were so kind and I was always getting like baskets of things dropped off to me. But um, again, it's like, it's such a different, they just have such a different relationship with food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you did get back and start working at Catholic charities, um, you were initially working in a program designed to mitigate risks in the home was um, identified by CPS. What did you notice in that area? Well, I'm going to say, um, yeah, to be on, I mean, I, to be honest, I was, I was a little bit embarrassed right off that I had gone halfway around the world to be of service in another country uh, when I was suddenly, I was, I was suddenly confront, confronted by, you know, the working poor and poverty right here um, in the States, right here in Arizona. And that, you know, I just not really thought about my own upbringing as being somewhat privileged and um, suddenly realizing that I had experienced a great deal of privilege um, and that there was, you know, a lot of poverty right here in our own backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, you know, noticing, noticing that, um, 
the next thing for me was just this connection to food. Like one of the first things that CPS looks at and assesses when they go into a home where there's been a complaint is, is there food in the home? You know, so one of the first things you do is go open the cupboards to see if there's food in there. Now, the interesting part of that, that, you know, this evolved for me over time was then realizing that like, oh, in some of these homes, the cupboards are full. There's plenty of food and you get to check that box that says food. Great. Uh, but it's full of, you know, Captain Crunch and uh-huh. breakfast rolls and Ho-Hos and Twinkies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, is is the food situation really okay? Should I really be able to check that box? <laughs> um, that was the question that I, that I had for myself as sort of time went on. Yeah, well, the, the, the thing that always kind of um, came to mind for me when my grandchildren were growing up and eating all of that processed food was they had these disorders like ADD, ADHD, OCD, depression, etc. And I didn't connect the dots until, you know, they were probably 10, 12 years old. Now they're in their 20s. But uh, between what they were eating and those conditions and how they exacerbate those conditions. And uh, it, it's been an uphill battle trying to convince them now in their 20s that, that you know, they're still eating the wrong foods, many mm-hmm. of them, and they're still having the same problems with uh, the uh, ADD, ADHD, OCD, etc. So, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, there's food, but is there food? It's not right. real nourishment. Well, um, you continued to work in the nonprofit sector at organizations focused on poverty relief. How did your perspective on the, on the problems of food insecurity evolve? Well, I think, yeah, we're just, we're sort of scratching the surface of that, you know, with, with that conversation is like, it's sort of moving past, like, is food available versus what kind of food is available? Um, and there were other people uh, that that were interested in that same thing, certainly at Catholic Charities and in other um, organizations throughout the Prescott area. And at, at one point, you know, those of us that were like really into the food thing and the good food, you know, we decided we would we would come together and, um, you know, see what we could do about this. There were farmers. We were there was a lot of work. Um, trying to, the farmer's market was very new here um, in the early 2000s here in Prescott. Mm-hmm. Um, and so farmers were coming together and our farmer's market was sort of getting getting going. And as that was happening, we were like, well, and what about people that can't afford to shop at the farmer's market? And there were um, small farms that were coming forward and saying, and you know, talking to organizations like Catholic Charities and saying, we'd like to provide fresh whole food. Um, and so anyway, we got all those people in a room um, and somebody had the bright idea to uh, poll our clients at Catholic charity. So we could find out a little bit more about, um, you know, what their response to different things would be and what might be the best method of like delivery and distribution if we were going to do something like that. Um, And what we discovered from doing this poll was that uh, it wasn't, it was it wasn't so much an issue of access we had people lined up to give out the food but the people on the receiving end weren't really interested in it uh and it it wasn't because they don't like the idea of good food but it was like what's a rutabaga i i don't even know how to recognize i would know what to do with a rutabaga if you gave me a rutabaga Mm -hmm. um 
And so the conversation around our table became then like, oh, well, so then there needs to be an education component to this. You can't just like hand out free food. You've got to help people understand what it is and what to do with it and how to make it in a delicious way. And, and now you're getting into questions of time and money and who's going to yeah. finance that. And how do you get those clients to come in for that, you know, food education workshop, Catholic charities was already trying to get clients to come in for, you know, financial education services. And, you know, it's like the, the long list of things that we think would be good for those people to know uh, is, is so long, you know, again, I'm using the air quotes. It's like this us and them conversation that starts to develop where, you know, all of us sit around a table and decide what's going to be good for them um, and then we're trying to figure out how to sort of like impose that on them for their own good. Um, and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And, and they're trying to unlearn everything that they've learned via uh, marketing ploys with big food and big pharma for, you know, over 50 to 70 years. So, you know, it started with canned soup and uh, cornflakes and, you know, all of the, the processed things that came about after, you know, one of the wars. I can't remember. Was it World, <laughs> World War Two? World War Two, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we're trying to unlearn everything that they've been told by uh, media is good for them. You know, milk is good for you, for everybody, except that it's got RGBH and hormones and, and uh, you know, white sugar is good for you until it's not and they're they're having to unlearn all these things that they've learned and in the meantime they've gotten so toxic in their in their brain cells and their bodies that they couldn't understand it if you you know wrote it out in plain english for them on a daily basis because their their receptors their brain uh, receptors are not functioning at a top level yeah, I think, you know, I think there's that. I, and I think also that, um, you know, if you look at like somebody like me, before I went to live on that farm um, for that 30-day retreat, I had never even seen, I remember, I remember looking at beans, you know, coming off the plant and thinking, <laughs> I'd never seen that before. How can I be 29 years old and have no idea that that's what that looks like? Um, and you know, and again, you know, I had a, a well-traveled um, upbringing and access to education and all kinds of supportive people in my life. And there are some things that you just don't know. So, so part of my thought as you were saying all that is like, you know, how would, how would these folks know? Why would any of us know? You know, mm -hmm. why, where are we getting that information? I, I, we're certainly not all listening to um, Voice America podcasts, <laughs> right? Um, or, or checking out this like newfangled information, which frankly, for quite some time has been considered alternative and, yeah. um, you know, fringe. Looking at, you know, how, you, the, like, like I was saying earlier, like a lot of these sort of mystery illnesses that have become a thing, like for a long time, we were making people out to be, um, you know, a little, a little, maybe a little off their rocker, have some other diagnoses going on just because we didn't even understand where that was coming from. Well, uh, Western medicine or uh, allopathic medicine has really kind of ruled the, the medical world 
for so long and, and been a reactionary mode for illness rather than a precautionary. And, you know, that's what people are used to. Take a pill for this, take a pill for that, you know, get your vaccine for this, your vaccine for that. And yes, some of those are, are helpful, definitely. I mean, I, I would be dead today if I hadn't had some Western medicine intervention uh, a couple of times. But um, as a whole, it needs to be integrative. That's, now, that's why now you hear more about integrative medicine. Right. Where the two sides, uh, naturopathy, homeopathy, et cetera, are working with the medical, Western medical mode. And that's, that's been needed for, for so, so, so long. But there hasn't been enough money in, um, you know, like chiropractic or um, homeopathy or naturopathy as there has been in Western medical modalities. Well, we got one more question before we go to break. When, you, when did you start to make the connection between mental wellness and food access very quickly, and then we'll come back to it? Well, just thinking back to, um, you know, my, my early days going into homes in, in the Prescott area and it, my, my first impression of like walking into a dark manufactured home with the TV on and, you know, this, a, a person, you know, laying on the couch and, and me entering into a conversation to figure out what's going on and sort of like walking away back out into the sunlight and thinking, what is this person doing? home in the middle of the day in the dark. Um, and as I, as I find out more and I enter into relationship, like almost all of these people that I was working with had these mental health diagnoses. Mm. Um, it was the first time I heard that the term SMI, which means seriously mentally ill. And I, the person who was telling me this explained, I was like, is that a joke? Seriously, mentally ill? Like that doesn't even sound like a, it's so vague. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that even mean? Uh, and turns out that um, it's, it's very serious and it has a lot to do with why certain folks can't maintain housing or, you know, maintain employment. And as a result, they're on supportive services. And as a result of that, they're getting food boxes and eating in soup kitchens. And so the type of food that they have access to um, is easily transportable, highly shelf stable, usually full of preservatives and chemicals. And I start realizing that most of the people that I'm working with supposedly because of child protective services or whatever, like the common denominator here is that most of them have mental health issues. Yeah. And they have an official diagnosis. Right. And a lot of those mental health issues could mostly go away if they were eating nutritious food. Well, hey, listeners, you can find more about um, What the Food and our documentary on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And coming up after the break, Healy and I are going to talk more about this connection between food and mental wellness and food access. Join us when we come back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you confused about what to eat? What's really in some of the foods you've been eating and how they affect the health of you and your loved ones? Did you know that what people eat can affect addictive behaviors? How did food get to be so confusing, so toxic, and so addictive? When and why did this start? What is safe and where can I find it? Join Karen Van Barneveld and her guests to find answers to many of your important questions on What the Food? Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. You are listening to What the Food. To reach Karen Van Barneveld or her guest on the program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Karen at whatthefoodfilm.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back to WTF, What's the Food? I'm with my dear friend Haley Hyatt today, who is also, coincidentally, the research assistant on our documentary, What the Food? And um, she just mentioned something about a food empowerment project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, right. Okay, so the food empowerment project, um, foodispower.org. Uh, great resources um, and information about food, food systems, um, stuff that's in the news and ways that you can take action in your area. They've got a lot of great information there. I think I would also um, encourage, I just started following a online journalism site called The Counter. Do you know anything about them, Karen? No. You would you would love this site. It's amazing. And you can sign up to be, um, you can subscribe and they'll send like news articles, but it's all related to the food industry. Um, and I, I, and and I would, I would say, I mean, it is, it is food industry reporting. So it's not really coming from any one particular angle, um, except I think for the consumer, I mean, I think they're pro food consumer. So they've got a lot of great information on there and um, are sort of up to speed on everything that's, happening from um, how the stimulus bill is going to impact people who are under-resourced in terms of food access to an article that I was just reading about um, Texas 
Texas, uh, let's see, a large organization that anyway just had a, a settlement with the prison complex there for mm-hmm. selling them un, unregulated, adulterated beef. <laughs> so, I mean, they just, it's like, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating stuff and it will take you all over. And that is um, called The Counter. Okay. Thank you. Dot org. All right. Let's get back to the uh, connection between mental wellness and food access. Can you tell us more? Mm. Well, um, I think, you know, one of the, the places when I, when I really started to dig in on this is I, I had started working at a place called the Coalition for Compassion and Justice, whose uh, primary focus was on food insecurity. They had a number of different programs, uh, but that was sort of what they had started around. And there was a soup kitchen there. So a lot, uh, I, I actually had the opportunity to sit down and eat with people and get to know people in this in this personal way. And, you know, like 80% of the people that ate there were people that always ate there. There were Mm -hmm. sometimes new people sort of coming through, but mostly it was um, a pretty steady community of folks that were experiencing homelessness um, or were moving around a lot, sort of marginally, marginally housed. Um, And when you think about putting a whole bunch of people in a really small areas, we were operating like out of a church basement, um, you know, part of what you're figuring out is not just how to feed people, but just keeping everybody safe. You know, there were uh, disruptions in in behavior. So, I mean, imagine putting a bunch of people with a mental health diagnosis in the same room under crowded conditions and, um, you know, you're going to see, you're going to see eruptions here and there. Anyway, that's when I started really thinking about like, huh, how is this, how is the food that we're serving here, um, exacerbating the underlying conditions that these people are coming in here with and, and contributing mm-hmm. to difficulties, managing behavior and self self monitoring and self regulating. Um, and, and, you know, that's an interesting interface because we were there to feed them, not uh, you know, we weren't necessarily qualified uh, behavioral techs or, you know, mental health providers. And yet that became part of what we were um looking at managing and, and dealing with, um, and, and as a small organization that, you know, that's a big, that was kind of a big deal. So, um, yeah, that, that's when it really came to the, the forefront for me. Well, when you, I, I met you when you were working at CCJ, I believe, right. yeah. um, many years ago. And, um, what do you think was, um, your overall, reaction to seeing what the, what kind of food was being served not just at ccj but any of the the shelters. right well actually so this kind of goes back to that question of wicked problems um i'm not doing a great job of explaining you know explaining exactly what that means but here's you know sort of the this is for me when i began to sort of switch my focus to um from education to leadership studies because i was thinking again, like it's so it's not just it's not really just about access to food, it's what you're accessing. And so then we begin to see a sort of a, a different challenge, even really in having the conversation, because there, this charitable mindset that we operate out of is that, you know, people should just be happy for for what they get. And if you mm-hmm. start to ask the question of, you know, but is this good food, a lot of what 
<laughs> a lot of what I would hear from from other people is like, come on, these people are are starving. And, it, you know, if they're if they're starving, any food is good food. Um, and so, true. well, it isn't true. And and actually, I was going back and listening to some old episodes um, and I was listening to your interview with Amanda Hitt on the whistleblower Mm-hmm. Uh, whistleblower and food advocacy and, and she was talking about how difficult it is like when somebody comes forward in, in a large organization and that organization uh, has a is intimately tied to sort of the economic prosperity of the town for that person to be questioning um, or blowing the whistle on unfair labor practices or something like that it has this trickle-down effect that could result in no no swing set in the local park Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's a long trip to like make all of those connections, but it's the economic, um, all those tendrils moving out everywhere. So suddenly the person who is trying to advocate for better labor conditions is also the jerk that's responsible for losing the sponsorship for the local basketball team or, you know what I mean? So it, it's, yeah. it's complicated how those things are related. And when I was hearing her talk about that, I thought that is felt similar to the kinds of um, difficulty you run into in having a conversation about food quality in a charity mindset, because um, you know you're you're sort of you're you're threatening you're threatening the good work that these people have sort of constructed their constructed their life around. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember when uh, a very not a dear friend of mine was um, trying to get me involved in a a food program for a local shelter or the local shelters where, you know, they would go around to the homes that would set aside uh, bags full of canned goods and packaged goods and things like that for the shelters. And, and it was very difficult for me to explain to her that, number one, I don't have those kinds of foods because mm-hmm. I threw them away. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even give them to a homeless person because they don't have any nutrition. And it would be like trying to put a Band-Aid on a severed artery. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and it's a, a very difficult line to walk when you want to be charitable and you want to help people, but you don't understand the break that happens between giving them non-food, I call it, and giving them real nutrition. And then you come into the argument of, well, there's not enough money for that. You know, there's, there's not enough uh, people donating for that. And the donations that are coming in have to pay for everything else that we do for them. So it's a real difficult line. It is a difficult line. And I think it's the one that, you know, got me thinking more about systems and less about personal choices. I mean, part of what we were serving um, on a regular at, at the food kitchen is, is what is left over and um, trucked to us by large grocery store chains, um, mm-hmm. Walmart, um, and even, you know, food pantries are getting a lot of their stuff from like, what is extra, what is about to expire? And you're necessarily working with those products that have a super long shelf life. So they're high in preservatives. Um, and it, it made me start thinking about, you know, just our whole history of working with excess, you know, we make mm-hmm. too much of whatever, and then we have to figure out what to do with it. 
Um, and it has this trickle down effect where it, it winds up on the plates and in the hands of the most vulnerable among us because they have, you know, the least advocacy, I think, and the least, um, the least voices saying like, hey, wait a second, you know, this isn't, this isn't actually helping. <laughs> this is hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I, I, you know, I think addressing that is, I mean, nothing short of a cultural shift, again, sort of in, in how, we, how we relate to food and food systems. Um, I, this seems like a huge leap, but just like follow me here for a second. I was watching a documentary last night on blockchain, um, trying to understand a little bit more about that system. And one of the things that's interesting about the technology of blockchain and how that works is that I think most people associate it with things like maybe Bitcoin or something like that, but they're, they're taking this blockchain technology and applying it to things like energy grids um, and uh, in refugee camps, providing IDs for people who are, are not affiliated citizens anymore of a particular country and crossing, like say they're making the journey from Syria to Ireland. Um, you know, how do you track those people? So the, the beauty of blockchain, right, is that it's decentralized. It's, it's a way for this tracking to happen outside a centralized um, behemoth, a centralized organization, whether that be, you know, in the finance industry, it's, it's your banks. But if you think about the large food structures in the United States and what, you know, big food and General Mills and places like Walmart or Pepsi Cola, um, if there's a way for us, I don't know that like blockchain technology is necessarily applicable, but it made me think about, um, you know, micro micro grids and micro ecosystems like our and it's, it's essentially what you know, it's like coming back to the beginning of just like in the Ukrainian model where it's like everybody grows something. You know, we start making it smaller instead of making it bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, that's, I'm not a food scientist and I don't know exactly how that works, but I have a feeling that, you know, the solution to some of this is actually, you know, getting smaller instead of getting bigger. I totally believe that. And and I can see the trends moving back to people growing your own food. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I started my garden several years ago. And that's why um, we have a greenhouse next to the house now. And we teach classes. I say we loosely. My friend mm-hmm. teaches classes out there. And people of all ages are coming to learn how to grow their own food and even people who have gardening experience are maybe moving from ornamental plants to edible plants now because they're learning more easily now because of the internet etc that what we're being served isn't necessarily what we should eat and the only way to guarantee that is to grow your own with heirloom seeds and to learn to do it properly and, you know, get the, the best harvest in the least amount of time with no pesticides, no herbicides, etc. And starting from dirt, like we started so, so many years ago. And we have school and community gardens coming around. Um, what do you think about, 
we talked about this a little bit, not specifically, but food deserts, working with convenience stores and stocking fresh produce. Well, okay. So again, the complex, one of the things I think that's fascinating about this is the complexity of the issue, because it turns out um, when I was working at a place called the Institute for Sustainable Social Change, one of the programs that we ran um, and oversaw through that organization was the AmeriCorps VISTA project. And AmeriCorps VISTA folks focus specifically on poverty reduction in the United States. They are the domestic version of the Peace Corps. So, um, you know, I loved working with these folks uh, for so many reasons. I love the mission of what they do, but I love these, you know, young people that are finishing up school and deciding that they want to give back in these rural areas because their focus is on poverty reduction. A lot of their projects had to do with food insecurity. So a lot of the young volunteers that I worked with when I was at the Institute for Sustainable Social Change were starting community gardens they were also part of the push to get the local farmer's market to accept um, like SNAP benefits mm-hmm. and to double those dollars so that they would be more affordable. But there were also a couple of projects that were specifically working on food deserts. And one of the things that I learned working with them was that um, getting convenience stores to carry the food wasn't the problem. The, the problem that they ran into was much like that early conversation I had at Catholic Charities with local people. It was, it was about marketing and merchandising. So they, you know, for example, got, you know, a, a small uh, convenience store out in Paulden, which is, you know, on the way to the I-40 corridor and would be considered um, technically a food desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got them to carry the produce, but it's like, you know, in the back corner of the store and it doesn't have any signage um, and it doesn't get the same resources that like when the Pepsi truck unloads, mm-hmm. you get, you know, three cases of cola and you get a, you know, a complimentary neon sign and you get instructions to tell you where to put it. Um, and, and all of, you know, all of that comes, I mean, food, food has to be merchandised in the United States. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and so that, you know, this problem of food deserts, I mean, there are a lot of technical, very legitimate technical problems to food deserts, particularly, you know, in urban areas. But I just I just think it's interesting that, you know, very often what we think of when we talk about food deserts is they're not being any food. But it's not always that um, you can't get the food in there as much as it just it again, it comes back to this like how how are we encouraging people to eat it and and strangely that is what we have to do at this time we have to encourage and teach and educate and invite and make appealing real food because real food has stiff competition <laughs> yes it does is <laughs> <laughs> that just sounds so incongruous but it's, it does it so does it seems crazy um, so can you tell our listeners what snap means that's an acronym. Um, supplemental nutrition, that supplemental nutrition benefits, it has, it's what we used to call food stamps. Okay. So you mentioned something about dumping grounds for excess. We're talking about bakery, bread, sweets, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I was making, you know, my thoughts on, um, I was just taking notes on my thoughts earlier this week about, you know, again, my experience in, in the beginning when I realized like how much stuff gets dropped off in 
and to organizations that are, you know, serving these vulnerable populations. And it just made me start thinking about like our attitude towards waste. And so we have moved into an era where we are, you know, we're having to deal with the garbage that we have discarded in the ocean, um, in the environment, in landfills, the, you know, the carbon emissions, like all of that, there's like this emerging sense of responsibility and stewardship from a sort of like a cradle to grave um, attitude towards product, certainly. And I would like to see that attitude, you know, move over into food systems more. And and so, you know, we did have this, <laughs> this move to um, sort of to, to mitigate food waste mm-hmm. that led to a lot of um, sort of grassroots organizations that were driving around and collecting foods and trying to get it distributed to the right people. We, we saw dumpster diving emerge, you know, right. as a result of this information that like perfectly good food is getting thrown into the dumpster. Uh-huh. So there's been a lot of, um, I think, positive, uh, moving in a positive direction is how, how we think about waste. But but I, I was thinking myself that like, well, we really need to define what's, what waste is and when it actually becomes waste. Because I think part of what's happening is the, you know, uh, vulnerable populations and believe it or not, prisoners in prison, those oh, are considered vulnerable populations um, or people eating in soup kitchens or people that are basically relying on um, outside services Um, government services or charitable services to feed them, those are all vulnerable populations. And part of how we're managing, again, air quotes, you know, our waste so that we can feel better about it is to send it to those places. You know, the bad meat going to prisons or the, you know, 5,000 extra croissant rolls that Walmart baked off um, going to the, to the local food kitchen. Mm -hmm somebody gets to feel better somewhere about that not being wasteful. And they get to write it off. And, and I guess there's that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the people that are eating it, you know, they, they don't get to feel good about that. No, they don't. So I, I, think, I, think our, I think how we think about waste is kind of an important, I think there's an important something in there that needs to be teased out a little bit more. Yes. Well, I'm going to tra- change tack a little bit. Um, as the... Uh, research assistant on the What the Food documentary. You've you've learned a lot over the last um, what four years it's been since we started this project about how food relates to addicts and recovery. Mm-hmm. Would you care to share any of the things that you've learned about that over the next couple of minutes here? Mm. Well, um, I would say. I would, I would just sort of start by saying like, I think addicts in recovery are also a vulnerable population. Yes. Um, certainly along with mental health diagnoses, substance abuse disorder is something that I have seen a lot of um, in my time working with under-resourced populations. Um, and there's a lot of research now that shows a, a lot of folks that are I mean, I think we've known for some time that a lot of people that have substance use disorder um, are self-medicating, but there's even more science coming out now that shows um, these vitamin deficiencies, nutritional deficiencies, problems in the gut uh, that are linked to anxiety and depression, which are two of the main um, offenders when it comes to self-medicating through drugs and alcohol. Um, 
a lot of that can be related back to food. And so, you know, speaking about like sort of under-resourced populations and their use of alcohol, which has, it can be cheap. I mean, you can get like a a fifth of cheap vodka at the local CVS down here for like three bucks or something, which is crazy. Um, But there you go. Then, you know, you, you suddenly start to feel better and it makes your day on the street corner seem a lot easier, frankly. A lot more tolerable holding this. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, um, you know, I also think that folks who are, there's a lot, there, 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 are, there are places you can go and spend, you know, a million dollars a month to be in a really nice, fancy recovery place. But there's, you know, 98% of the recovery places out there are not like that. Um, yeah. And people are also there um, just now start like the recovery community is just now starting to look at like, oh, we're spending a lot of money on um, how we, you know, horse therapy or uh, whatever, whatever different kind of modalities we're introducing, but we're not paying attention to the food. Yeah. Um, and Go so that, that's a new, um, I think that's a new trend that we're going to see more of. And I think that your work on what the food um, and with your team of medical experts there who also work in the recovery community, I think they're leading the charge um, on that. And, you know, I think we're going to yes. see change. I, I am already seeing some change. Well, I want to thank you. Haley again, and I want to remind our listeners to like our show on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn and Instagram. You give us a five-star rating. And again, you can find more information about our topics of discussion today on all the top social media platforms. And click on the link on my host page here to check out my God Made Organics, not GMO's book, and watch the eight-minute documentary trailer. You can make a tax-deductible donation to What the Food Nonprofit Organization and proceeds from your purchases and donations go toward our documentary work in progress. I also have a Heavenly Yoga subscription service to online classes. You can have any time of the day, 24-7. And there are several different choices and levels of uh, yoga that you can try, try out And you can also join Mindy and me for a revitalizing retreat at Harmony and Heart Retreats in gorgeous and serene Sedona later this year. Click the banner here on the host page or go to harmonyandheart.com to get more information. It's very limited availability. And tune in next week for my interview with another member of our documentary team, Victoria Abel, and learn how addiction nutritionists help addicts and everyday people figure out what foods do and don't work best for their individual needs. And I want to thank you again and again, Haley, for all that you do for the documentary team and just being such a a fabulous person and loving, (laughs) sharing your passion for health with our listeners. Well, Karen, thank you. And again, I, the work that you are doing that you continue to do to bring shed the light on, you know, how important food and what's going on with our food systems are. I mean, hats off to you, Karen. Thank you. And as always, I remind our listeners to be kind to yourselves. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining host Karen Van Barneveld and What the Food. Be sure to tune in for another episode next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.